Hi, and welcome to the Imaginators Podcast. My name is Matt Downey. I'm here with Chris McQueen. And we know it's been... Oh, yeah. Let me pause for Chris to say hi. Say hi, Chris. Hello. Hi, Matt. Hi, Chris. Uh, Uh, It's been too long, but we're back. And we want to talk a bit about, because it is the season, about incarnation. And we're in the season of Advent right now. So to start things off, uh, Chris is going to read a poem, and we have no live special guest with us this time, but we have some people as guests in their writings, and Hmm. one of them is um, poet Malcolm, I'm just going to say his last name wrong. Geit. Geit. Malcolm Geit. Okay. Yeah. I actually got a chance to see him with Steve Bell in Kitchener just uh, about a week ago, and uh, I... I'm going to read one of his poems. I wish I could do justice. Um, listening to a true poet read poetry is, um, I, I would almost say it's a life-changing experience. It was something that was absolutely remarkable. But uh, his language is quite remarkable, and so hopefully I can do it some justice. So this is a poem from a collection that uh, Malcolm has, has put out uh, called The Sounding of the Seasons. Uh, wherein he uh, he just brings sonnets. Um, he's written sonnets to reflect on the Christian year, and and this is from um, one of the old antiphons, which are uh, just the names of gods. Where we get uh, "O come, O come, Emmanuel." Though all the verses are are from the O antiphons, and uh, so this is "O Rex Gentium," um, which is the O King part of of the um, O antiphons, and the poem goes like this. O king of our desire, whom we despise, king of the nations, never on the throne, unfound foundation, cast off cornerstone, rejected joiner, making many one, you have no form or beauty for our eyes, a king who comes to give away his crown, a king within our rags of flesh and bone. We pierce the flesh that pierced our disguise. For we ourselves are found in you alone. Come to us now and find in us your throne. O king within the child, within the clay, O hidden king who shapes us in the play of all creation. Shape us for the day your coming kingdom comes into its own. So what I adore about the language of this um, and why it kind of popped for me with regards to the subject matter as we approach the Christmas season um, is how it reflects on sort of this place that we're caught in right now in the season of Advent, to be honest. Um, Christmas speaks of the, of the incarnation of the stuff of God into flesh. Um, and that's what we arc towards and celebrate um, and I love the language of that in this, uh, where it speaks of, of the potter and the clay and just um, being rags of flesh and bone. I mean, this is beautiful language. But the other thing that I find really interesting is it's also a poem that's caught, it's with language that's caught in the tension because there is this sense of, of God working out and Christ working out his reality in our, in our own lives as well as being part of that incarnation in the absence of a bodily Christ here in like in the room with me right now 
Um, and so I love that it kind of straddles those two spaces. Um, and that's the theme, I think, that we're, we're wanting to jump in and explore, um, in particular within this realm of being creative people and um, just this theme for me fires my imagination into life in um, probably the deepest and most profound ways for me of all the of all of the attributes of God, uh, Christ in in flesh, um, God in flesh is for me the most compelling. So I'm excited to talk about this today. Yeah. yeah. Um, maybe you can tell a bit of your history with Advent uh, later on, uh, but I'm going to start with. I have an Advent practice, which is second annual Advent practice, which I, I adopted last year, and it's called an Advent jar. And basically, what I do is take um, 24 scriptures about Jesus and 24 chocolates, and, <laughs> and I toss them in a jar uh, in no particular order. And what we do is an, an exchange at our church. So I will bring my jar, and other people who have made this jar will bring it. So I'll take home a jar that I've not made, so I don't know what's in it, what kind of chocolate and what kind of verses. Um, so anyway, so th- I pick out a verse every day, and I read it, and I meditate on it, and I actually post it online on Instagram for people, and people actually follow my Advent practice. So that's kind of cool. But today... Uh, As we're talking about incarnation, this was the verse that I picked out of my Advent jar. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Hmm. And that's really what I've been thinking about in this whole idea of incarnation. Like you said, God in flesh. Those those two don't seem to go together because... uh, in some of our theology, we just hear all this transcendent language of God being all-powerful and all-knowing and all-present and just above all everything else and King of kings and Lord of lords and higher than everything else. And then in the incarnation, we have all this language of coming down, being lowly, being humble, being meek. Uh, instead of this overflowing abundance that we have in the story of creation, in the incarnation, we have a story of it almost seems not enough. He's born as a, as a, into a poor family, in an, to an oppressed people, a child in a kind of an awkward marriage situation. Um, and all of it just seems not enough. So it's, if I use theological terms, it's this idea of pleurosis, which is overabundance, overflowing, which you see in the creation story, and this idea of kenosis, the emptying out of, and those things happening at the same time. Uh, this idea of extreme fullness, overabundance, and of emptying, and there's always a nothingness to it. So it's everything and nothing existing at in one person. I don't know. To me, I can't explain it. It's, it is a mystery, but in some ways it makes the most sense of everything. Like you say, it makes everything else make sense. Yeah. Two things. First of all, that is a fantastic, um, Advent practice. I, that's, fa- that's brilliant. Um, just 
in the way that that invites community into a space where you're sharing one another's sort of things that have highlighted or popped in scripture or whatever, I, that's, I'm going to take note of that. I really like that. Um, and yeah, it's, I mean, thematically the, this idea of, um, a, a Christmas story that is, that is fully unsanitized, um, is so compelling to me, but you're right. It's we're uncomfortable with it. And, you know, one of the things that I get caught in between, um, in this season is how much, um, glitz and glamor there is in the way we present Christmas. And part of the tension for me is that I actually really love that on some on some level like i love walking downtown and all of the light posts are all decorated up and there are you know the i I particularly still love the incandescent you know um lights that are on people's homes in particular just that there's a glow um and i'm actually a deeply nostalgic creature uh in this rich it's such a rich uh, season um, for me and my family and, and all that stuff and so I, I really adore that and I and I love it but at the same time um, there's not a lot of room within Christmas decor for um, this screaming poopy Jesus that you know comes out of a womb covered in, in blood Right. And I mean, just the reality of of the um, a, a place of being a, at least a little bit outside um, sort of social convention. Well, a lot outside social convention. Um, and so that really moves me every time when I think about that in it um, and how that affects my not just my practice spiritually, but my creativity in this season is really, really profound. Um, it, it makes me fight for language and for imagery that is not so cerebral, which we were talking kind of before we let the tapes roll. You know, um, shocking to anyone who's been listening to these, but I have a, a certain, you know, predisposition towards the cerebral. No. And uh, <laughs> say it's not so. It's totally shocking. Um, but there is something about this season that, that wants to beat that out of me um, because it it really does almost in a... I mean, you almost... Well, I never want to use a word like reduce and God in the same sentence. That just doesn't really make sense to my understanding of the grandeur of who you know God is. But on some level, he's really reduced to a person in Jesus, a confined space, a location of all of the hopes and promises of God that fuel all of the most powerful art. Um, and, and yet they're found in someone who, um, you know, as the poem that we just read and scripture, more importantly, speaks to, you know, there really was no form or beauty from what we can from what we know in the person of Jesus, it wasn't apart from a moment of transfiguration or baptism. There really didn't seem to be a glow. I mean, it, the halo is a is a great, um, 
you know, uh, it's, it's great for our icons, but I don't think that showed up. I don't think that there was a halo in, in little baby Jesus. And, uh, so I love that. And I love how challenging that is in the narrative that speaks to, um, the beautiful feasting, pretty, you know, choral kind of Christmas expression that I love so much. So, yeah. Um, Dean is like you. He loves Christmas and all the lights and the traditions and the gift giving the family and the feasting. And he wants to put up lots of, he just wants to do it all. Right. And I, I'm like the Grinch. I want to do nothing. Uh, and I, but it's a fight. It's a fight every time, every year this season. I just, I fight so much against everything that is pushing me towards what, in just the, all the add-ons that have come with mm. this season, where it's very nostalgic. It's very much about abundance, yes, and family and all that. But it's so, it's, everything has a soft focus on it. Uh, we're watching It's a Wonderful Life over and over and over again, and uh, or whatever it is. I can't even explain it, but there, I know there's something deep down inside of me from the time I was a child that just fights with that every single season and really wants to get back to the humility, the meekness, the, mm. the almost ugliness of what God, the form that God chose. And it was just being shocking and offensive to so many people. And I even think of this, my little Advent verse from today. You know, Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he's talking to people that have been crying out for a liberator, for centuries, mm -hmm. they were oppressed. They were the poor. They were the fishermen. They were the rough people. They were like the, the people in society that you don't want to kind of hang out with. Like they're not the nice, pretty people. And what does Jesus say to them? He doesn't say, I'm here. Things are going to change, guys. Come on. You've been at the bottom of the rung for a long time. I'm here. The Messiah is here. Things are going to change. No. What does he say to them? Anyone who wants to be first, well, that's all of them. Because they're right at the bottom. He says, you have to be the last. We're already the last. How much more last can we get? You know? <laughs> yeah. This, yeah. Is, this is the message of hope that the Messiah is bringing. You're already at the bottom of the rung. And instead of bringing you up, well, yeah, I'm going to join you at the bottom. And it's just offensive in so many ways. Um, but then later on, he does say, uh, actually in Mary's, um, Mary's uh, song of praise while she's pregnant with Jesus, before anything has really happened, she's saying, you know, the rich will go away hungry and the poor mm -hmm. will be fed. They'll have the feast. So there's this reversal is coming. And that was actually a really uh, political statement. And that song over throughout history has actually been banned by governments and regimes that are uh, trying to keep their people in line. Wow, I did not know that. I did not know that till this uh, past few weeks either. That uh, throughout, especially the most mostly in the past century, that certain governments, India, when uh, in colonialism, banned banned those words, those words of Mary. Wow, that's because it wild. speaks so much of the the people in power being toppled, and the people at the bottom rising up. You know what's interesting too about. Um, about Mary's Magnificat um, is, and I had never thought about this until a friend of mine pointed it out to me some time ago. 
Um, but you know, we have we've kind of presented Mary as um, particularly within the Protestant Church, but I think even across the board, um, not quite as a hapless child, but there has been, you know, innocent and and pure, and um, you know, there's all sorts of wonderful things that are said about Mary. Um, but having fierce intelligence is not one of the things that has typically been ascribed to her and the role that she carries. And yet when you look at that language, it will stand shoulder to shoulder with the most powerful, beautiful passages to be found anywhere in the scriptures. I mean, it is shoulder to shoulder with David's writing uh, in the Psalms. And, um, you know, it's... It's just a little bit divergent. I mean, I'm totally with you in in what you're talking about with um, just the nature of Christ and this offensive um, sort of undertone to this whole story that can be washed away by the by the glitz. Um, but there's something as well that may pull us just a little bit back into the just a little bit back into the soft folk. It's Go not ahead. too much though. Go ahead. Is it not phenomenal? That of all the kinds of people that God could have chosen to bear himself into this world in such a manner, that he apparently chose a poet, a fiercely intelligent, um, world-aware, prophet-aware poet who could articulate uh, in such powerful ways, I just I love I love that um, that idea, and it speaks as well to me of um, you know just the authenticity of her language too, right? Because I think I mean I don't know what I don't know, and I don't know a lot, um, but when I imagine what the people who were waiting for Messiah must have been waiting for. And there are little clues here and there in Scripture and in other historical uh, resources that suggest that people were looking for some kind of a conquering Savior and a powerful Savior and somebody who would topple Rome and reestablish the right reign of of Israel and David's throne and all that stuff. Um, You know, there's almost... A mythology in what people people were longing for a mythological ruler or mythological savior, and the way that Jesus reveals himself and is revealed is anything but mythological. I mean, yeah, we have virgin birth. Yes, we have uh, like a, a, a star shining in the sky or whatever that was. I mean, there are there are certain attributes of the story that are absolutely fantastic, um, and. But the actual person of Jesus is so rooted in just this common expre- common experience of of, of birth and um, in just a simple family that Mary seems to capture in some of her language because she's um, it's very honest. It's very it's a very honest poem. Um, that speaks to hope, but like you said, it doesn't doesn't gloss over any of the other stuff either. I'd love it. I think it's a great archetype for artists and for um, 
um, creatives to dig in around this time. And I've knocked Thomas Kincaid in the past. I will probably knock him in the future. Um, poor you know, Thomas. He, poor Thomas. I'm sure he's a great guy. I don't know. I don't know him. Um, you know, but it's, there's, you know, for, I am a nostalgic creature and I love, I love a certain amount of nostalgia, but I also recognize that it's, it, it can be poison to truth because it wants to gloss over and, like you said, put into soft focus. And um, the kind of art that even was broadcast in and around the coming of Jesus and was inspired by his coming was anything but that stuff. And I found it interesting. I mean, do a little exercise if you want. Uh, just Google Mary, an icon, or uh, images of Mary, and it's it has been so, um, I don't know, it's a lot of hagiography there, like making her a saint, but it's always a submissful, doe-like expression looking up and then the halo and everything. There's there's a, ver- a submissiveness to her. And even the most, uh, the most mentioned thing that she says is, you know, I am your humble servant. Let it be done unto me as you would have. Like the submissiveness is so heightened when we talk about Mary. Uh, even in the how she's represented, I had to search long and hard to find a strong picture of Mary. Wow. And I think, well, this is what centuries of patriarchy will do. The woman is portrayed as the best attribute that she has is submission, hmm. right? Uh, and being compliant and receiving. And I think, read a little further, people. Then you get some, you know, get something else from Mary. This, like you say, this poetic, prophetic utterance of how she is the key person in bringing the Messiah into the world that will change everything, and she actually having an inkling of that before anyone else does. And I think, yeah. So I'm, I'm always trying to be very, very careful how we portray our biblical characters. Uh, because we've colored them so much and without even knowing it, I think, and sometimes knowingly, we use it to serve our own purposes in the church, to get people to do what we want them to do or to make people more attracted to the church or paint a prettier, more successful picture uh, of God or something. I don't I don't know. Um, when So speaking of Mary as... A poet, which is really cool. I hadn't really thought of it that way before. But I was thinking about this idea of abundance and scarcity. And really, the the birth of Jesus seems to take place in the midst of scarcity. Uh, and in other places, we see pictures of God, especially in creation, as being very, there's being an abundance. But then when you think, think of artists and creatives, and, you know, what's the common terms? The starving artist, Right. And I think of Van Gogh. I just saw the the film, Loving Vincent. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Everybody just go see it. <laughs> I, I mean, want to. <laughs> it was amazing. I just sat there. I went I went with a friend. I, I didn't go with Dean because I went in the middle of the day. But I went with a friend, and I just sat there. And after the first five minutes, my eyes were going, I can't take it all in. Like you're just recognizing painting after painting after painting. It's just wow. so beautiful. Uh, anyway. But this idea of Van Gogh as well, struggling, uh, being poor, just struggling with relational and mental health issues and finding his place and everything. And that bringing out some of the most beautiful creative expressions of the world through his eyes. 
And there's always this tension of in, in creativity, having less or actually being at the bottom of the societal ladder seems to bring out a richness and a fullness. And to me, Jesus embodies that in some way, being a human being, first of all. So giving up all of this notions of power and knowing everything, uh, and being everywhere present and so now caught in time. It's like a Star Trek episode, you know, I'm caught in time. <laughs> Dean's been watching Star Trek at home, so that's why it's in, in my mind. I'm, I'm impressed. That was a great <laughs> reference. Carry on. So anyway, he's caught in time in some way, cho- chose to be caught in time. But through that, it's like the most creative expression comes forth. Because even in the miracles, I see that. There's this scarcity and Jesus is going, hey, in, in this scarcity, there's actually an abundance if we can just reach down and find it somewhere. And I just read, uh, this is from Parker Palmer, uh, just his way of looking at the feeding of the multitudes and saying, if you notice, Jesus doesn't just go, hey, snaps fingers and now we've got poof, we've got food for everybody. He says, no, you, you disciples, you go feed these people. You find some food. You sit them down. You, you break them into groups. Jesus is basically, and then he goes, and now I bless it. Mm. He actually didn't do the work. He had a whole bunch of apprentices, and he's saying, okay, I'm going to show you where to find abundance in the midst of scarcity. And I'd never read that story before that way. I always thought, miracles, boom, Jesus shows up, everything's good. But is Jesus mm. going, no, I'm, I'm in the scarcity with you, but because I'm so connected with the Creator of overflowing abundance, scarcity is actually a place where I shine. We can shine. The creative shines. I kind of think in terms of, like, so from the creative process, I think of constraint and how constraint is something that so often I and others will war against. Um, And yet, you know, and, and there's a some really good thinking out there about how constraint is actually what allows for creativity to take place. But I've never thought of the whole Christmas narrative and even the whole Advent narrative, which is the longing and the anticipation of, and the setting the stage for Christ to come, which is really what the history of the people of Israel. I mean, it's, you could say that that's um, in large part setting the stage for Jesus to come. Um, is really an exercise in God creating constraints to work within. I've never thought about that. Um, but, you know, he doesn't choose the most powerful people to reveal himself through. He, choose, he chooses a weak people to reveal himself through. A people who are intimately, uh, um, you know, acquainted with uh, hardship and with exile and with slavery and all sorts of things. And also sin and debauchery and terrible practices. You know, he chooses those people. And then... From within the context of those people, he doesn't choose those who would be powerful within even that context. He chooses those who are weak within that weakened context. And so, um, and from that too, um, you know, something we explored a little bit at the Imaginarium that we had in the beginning of November, um, which just a little shout out for that. We're going to do that again. We have plans to do that again um, in 2018 and if you can make it, it was a fantastic time. Um, and Matt's going to make it this yes, time. We're going to make yes. sure that 
yeah, we're going to plan it together. So it's going to, she's going to be there. For sure. Um, but we explored a little bit this idea that um, everything, all of the work of God is fundamentally creative. I mean, that's what he's always doing. Even, even redemption is not so much about us going to heaven as it is um, God re- creating something, a new creation. And so from within these uh, self-induced constraints of what we see take place within inside of the Christmas story, we find the seed of new creation, the work of new creation originates from this place of extraordinary constraint that God chose. He chose it that way. That's, that's amazing to me. And it's interesting. I'm just thinking about the Christmas season. That's the first word that jumps into my mind, isn't it? Restraint, constraint, Christmas huh. season. <laughs> We've kind of inverted that to being a, a season of, even if you have nothing, you have plenty. Some, somehow. I'm reminded of, uh, I think it's O. Henry's story, The Gift, where um, you have the two, the couple that's very, very poor, and she has the long, beautiful hair, and he has oh, yeah. uh, the pocket watch, and they have nothing to give each other, but they really, really want to give something to each other. So she sells her hair to buy him this, wa- this chain for his one prized possession, his, his pocket watch, and he sells his pocket watch to to buy her combs for her beautiful long hair. So in fact, and it's always seen in this story that they gave each other the perfect gift, right? Because they gave something that was valuable to them for the other person. But actually they gave each other useless gifts because she could not (laughs) wear the combs and he could not put the chain on his in watch. So again, you have these things of perfectly and useless and sacrificial and not you know, really look at it practically, that was stupid. Uh, but in somehow it grabs us, that story grabs us as in, that is the perfect gift, because it was done out of love, it was done sacrificially. And in the end, something was changed about each of them, uh, that it's like they, I don't know, they were marked, in a mm. way. Um, and I think that it resonates, that kind of story resonates in us very deeply as instead of this go out and buy a really expensive gadget for your person it's like you know actually give or sell your most prized possession in order to give something that you know means something to your loved ones that's really uh catch uh, to me captures more the spirit of what a gift is when we think Mm. of the gift of jesus some it costs a great deal and it marks you in some way. And I was actually thinking about the implications of incarnation in the Trinity, meaning, mm-hmm. you know, at one point, you know, God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they're just sitting in heaven having a, you know, a drink and saying, hey, it would be really cool if you went to earth and became a human being. I like that idea. That's good. Let's do it. You know, at, but it's like for all eternity in some way not that jesus the person on earth always existed but christ has always been part of the trinity the son have always has always been part of the trinity and i don't know how to wrap my mind around that but this this generous space has always been opened up that part of the trinity is god with us emmanuel not that we are Mm. human beings part of the trinity but there's always this space that has always been within the Godhead for humanity 
to be, to come alongside, to come into that communion. It's interesting that you say that. That actually just this season, um, in fact, I think last week was something that struck me. It's basically what you just said, but I'd never thought about it before, um, was that Jesus coming and the way that he came was also, it wasn't just the revelation of, of the way and you know, the light coming into the darkness. It was those things. It was also God revealing himself as Trinity. We don't have Trinity without that understanding of Jesus, even though, even though um, we would be able to say, yeah, we can see now that he was always, that this, this idea of Trinity, of, of God in relationship, of God had exists and, and has existed. But Jesus, that's part of the gift of Christ, is an understanding of Trinity. It's like that also presented and was revealed in him and all of the implications for um for love and for self-giving mutual indwelling covenantal kind of relationship that was only ever hinted at perhaps in the marriage kind of picture suddenly is embodied in um in God as revealed in the embodiment of Jesus. I mean, it's this sort of, uh, it was kind of a mind-blowing moment for me um, to realize that that was part of the gift of Christ specifically, was God as Trinity, even though it took a few hundred years for us to kind of really be able to articulate that and and define that. Um, but it's just profound. It's It just continues to... Um, you just there's so many layers to how God has chosen to reveal himself in this and i think that that's part of the for me the tragedy might be a little bit strong a term but actually i don't think it is because because it is a tragic thing if we reduce and miss the nature of god for the celebration of his coming um and you know what? Even when I think about the sorts of um, narratives that impact me that have come out of this season, um, you know, I mean, as great as Elf is as a movie, <laughs> right? But it's actually the movies about transformation, and you know, I think of a Christmas Carol. Like Dickens seems to have gotten it so right in a lot of ways for me. In a Christmas Carol, um, and it's a wonderful life. And there's these different stories that I know we've kind of recycled them over and over again, and they and they really are in the halls of nostalgia at this point in a lot of ways. And yet, there's something about this transformative experience with the person of Christ um, that in 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 the deepest stories actually. Um, even within our cultural kind of offerings that we have on on television or in other media, there's something that is so sustaining when these stories that are about broken people who are caught up in pain um, and 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 their own kind of suffering um, or narcissism or whatever, and they are transformed by Christ um, is where I mean that's always been the thing that struck for me 
in the middle of it. And the other thing too, just kind of that I don't want to miss, it was a thought that popped into my head a while back um, when we were talking about Mary. Um, she, the other thing about her is that you can't think of Mary with any kind of accuracy or respect and not recognize that she bore all of the pain of bringing Christ into the world and losing him from the world, right? She really embodies and, and carries um, pain and grief on two sides of the story. And, you know, the underbelly of this season is that we have such an addiction to the way that we think that peace and joy and love and all those good things express themselves. And this is the season where we get to test that out and say, well, what would the world be like if, if we, you know, we lived like this all the time. Um, but when we do that, we are creating, we're pushing people to the outside who don't have access to our vision of those things, of peace or joy or whatever. And then we have this awful underbelly where we have people who lose the thread of life and decide to end it all. I mean, Christmas is terrible. The statistics around Christmas and poverty, as great as it is to feed to feed people during this time, the statistics in terms of people who choose to stop living, it's really, really tragic. And um, and I think that if we if we allowed the person of Mary and her grief and pain that surrounded the whole story to be part of our narrative, perhaps there'd be more of a home for people. Um, to find themselves in this in this season and not always be so out in the cold if they don't have a loving family who's going to give them gifts and feed them well, you know. Yeah, part of the, I think the trouble with the Christmas package as we know it is that there's such a pressure. And I think that's part of the thing that I, re, I kind of push back against every season is the pressure to have a perfect Christmas and to do everything. Uh, do it with people in the family, in the community, to do everything, basically. Everything that you want to be as a human being and everything you want in life is packed into this season, it seems like. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, you know, just as you were talking about Mary, this, this uh, beginning in pain and, and ending in grief, and then in joy as well. Um, mm -hmm. But I wonder if part lament... Uh, I know we have Advent, the waiting, the anticipations. It's seen as more of an excitement, right? But I think it was a lament when you listen to uh, the prayers of the prophets. Come, Lord Jesus. Well, it wasn't Jesus at that time, but this idea of come, Messiah, God, come, come. It was a, a cry of desperation, not, I'm so excited. Oh, I, Christmas is coming, you know? <laughs> it's a different kind of feel. And I'm wondering if, and again, if, if you want to add something to your... Christmas liturgy, maybe on Christmas morning, uh, start with a recording of a woman giving birth and crying oh. and wailing out in pain and saying, this is how it starts, pain. Um, wow. I don't know. Just the, the, the idea of, because we've like put icing on all the pain at Christmas time, it seems like, and that then the, the pain doesn't go underground. It just doesn't. And the people with pain right near the surface feel like, well, forget it then, right? And we're, we don't listen to those cries at Christmas time. And I know mm. in, even in my, um, my Christmas settings, everything is, we all try to be nice to each other, you know, and uh, we do have some political arguments on one side <laughs> of the family. Um, that's annual. Uh, but we all try to be really nice and everything is, we're wearing our best outfits, we're on our best behavior. And I think, what if it was a, 
What if we invited and made space for rawness, for mm. uh, pain, for suffering? And uh, I don't even know how to incorporate that without stealing some of the the joy that people find in this season, that it is super hopeful and celebratory for them. But I think we don't want to shut out the very people that find this so painful because um, that's, like you said, that's the people that God said, those are the people where I will Mm. insert myself, where I will be with. The people that know that they are hungry and needy and weak and poor and sinful not with the people who think they, they're not that, they're above that now. Mm. And in some ways in our society, money seems to cover that over where we don't look at the reality in some way. If we've got money, like you said, the Home Alone, I was thinking of all the Christmas movies too, the Home Alone movies or everything, it seems to just cover over part of the human story as if it doesn't exist mm-hmm. in some way. Yeah. Well, one of the interesting things that came up last week with our with this gathering that we had with uh, some of our teenagers, I invited a few of uh, a, a few of the kids in the group who have thought pretty pretty well about some of this stuff, and we just kind of had a discussion, public discussion. And um, one of the things that came, so one of the one of the girls who was sharing um, was telling a story of when one of her best friends died um, in early December. And, um, which actually brought me back to, to, you know, um, my moments of, of, of greatest loss, which also took place in the beginning of December. And so we started talking a little bit about what it was like to search for Christ in a se- in a Christmas season of grief. Um, and how profound it was to find him there. Because for both of us, we had, we, you know, that, that, um, it was, it, you know, for, for me and my part of the story, which I can um, obviously speak with, with more authority about, um, you know, that was a year where there was great loss in my family, but we had, we encountered family in a really profound way. And we encounter, we had Christmas and we celebrated Christ in a really profound way. Um, that was, it was suddenly cut off because none of the glitz mattered that, you know, in particular that, that year, that time, that season of, it just has a way of stripping you down. Um, and so I was grateful for the depth of the story of, of Christ that I had been exposed to, to that time, because if I only knew the glitz of the season, I would have been lost and um, would not have been able to find him in that. Um, you know, so I'm grateful for my, my upbringing, even though my, both of my parents are now pastors and whatever, we, we were not a believing household during my early childhood, uh, up until I was 12 or 13, actually. And, but the one thing that we did, um, the only thing that we did with any regularity uh, that was the least bit faith-based um, was we observed Advent, and that was part of the German tradition. So that's so. This is my. Um, this is where I see that traditions have sometimes a great weight behind them um, that we may not even fully acknowledge in the in the form of the thing. But you know that was our German tradition. So we would have the wreath and we'd light the candle in every you know every week 
Every Sunday, one more candle would be lit. And so you'd start with a room that was very, very dim. And by the time, you know, you came to the fourth uh, Advent or Christmas Eve, um, you would have a room that was beautiful. It was still dim, but it was glowing. And my mom would always say, and this is as far as it went in terms of in terms of Sunday school. This was my Sunday school. My mom saying, the, the light, the growing light, it, it reflects the coming of the light into the world, into darkness, and that was Jesus. So that was my entire Sunday school experience. Um, but it was enough. It was enough of a foundation. Just that piece alone, knowing that God came in darkness um, and connecting light and connecting warmth was actually enough to sustain um, sustain me and my family through extraordinary grief in the season, right in the Christmas season, the time when nothing bad is supposed to happen. And uh, so I would just really kind of put out a, a, a plea um, to really fight for Christ in them. And I'm not talking about Jesus is the reason for the season bumper sticker stuff, because you know what? That's just, in my mind, that just feels a lot like power brokering, and we feel like we're losing political power and whatever. I'm not, in, I personally, that, that, I don't care. We don't need to make Christmas great again. No, we really don't. Um, we, we really don't. Um, but we do need to make Christ real in, um, that's not the right way of saying it. Christ, as he incarnated, Christ as he came is the Christ who came. And the power of that and the power of this time to remind us of that um, is, is worth digging into. Um, I know it was a lifeline for me. So, so I implore you, <laughs> artists, tell the dark story, tell the dark side of the season. Because that's where Jesus showed up. And one final note, for me anyway. Um, for the last seven years, uh, I always start the Advent season in our congregation. Um, the song, there's, there's two songs that always make the cut. One is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, because it's the perfect Advent song. And it's a beautiful, it's probably the, one of the best songs ever written, in my opinion. Um, but the other one that always makes the cut and is always the first song. Um, I always start the Advent season with uh, that old delirious song, Obsession. Oh, okay. And uh, look it up. Um, look at the lyrics. But it is, it is a lament. It is a heart cry. It is a place of darkness and brokenness and contention. Um, and... It always confuses. I, I can always see confused faces. Why are we singing this? What? Why are we singing this? There are Christmas decorations that what? But it's the place where we find him. It's the, it's the place where we start the journey every time. And it always starts in lament. It always starts in lack and in need and in um, an acknowledgement that we need Christ in a, in a very real way. So. Yeah. No, thanks. Um Lots to think about there, and I and I do. I think that's. I feel that's part of my job as both a creative and a pastor teacher, is to make sure that we don't change the story, to suit uh, 
what's happening in the culture, what we're so used to hearing and seeing, that the narrative that's just embedded in our culture, that we really go back to know what really is the narrative. And that's my job uh, to do, to present that to people uh, and to know it myself and live it myself. And that's, mm. that's no easy feat. I honestly say if I fight with it every single year uh, just to get back to, as you say, who is Christ? What does this mean? What kind of God would do this? And to whom does God choose to reveal himself first? Hmm. And uh, to identify with the, with the poor in spirit in some way, saying our lack is right at, at the surface instead of well hidden and well tucked away. Hmm. Um, a slight change of topic, maybe, I don't know. But I was thinking of the Santa that we have in our culture and even now Elf on a Shelf, and how it's almost a counterfeit judgment in some way. So if you've been good, you get reward. And if you've been naughty, well, I don't know what you get at this point. It used to be coal, uh, but it's, it's almost like a or, judgment. Or, or you, in German culture, you would be whipped by a demon. How about oh, that? Well, there you go. <laughs> you have, there's that as well. Another option to add to the list. But it's almost like this counterfeit kind of judgment day. Right, and um, it's so odd where we we want judgment, we want recompense for what we've done during the year, but it comes in an odd way, uh, in uh, a kind of we've constructed some kind of Santa Claus or Coca Cola has anyway, but in just reading, <laughs> yeah. going back to the original story of Saint Nicholas, where he was actually not actually not. He was a generous person. He uh, inherited some wealth. Uh, but, you know, the, the legend most closely associated with him being that there was this family that the, I don't know if the wife was on the scene. It was a father, had three daughters, and he was destitute. And again, being the third, fourth century, women uh, couldn't make their own means, their own livelihood. So they had to have a husband. And he couldn't find any husbands for them because they were so poor. Uh, they were not an attractive uh, bride to be procured uh, so he's destitute and basically they were going to have to sell themselves into prostitution just to you know be able to live and Saint Nicholas hears about this and he tosses three bags of gold because he's wealthy he has this inheritance and uh, he doesn't need it he tosses three bags of gold into this house as some would say it down the chimney or <laughs> Whoever, I think he tries to do anonymously is the point. And to say, you know, I want to liberate you from possible captivity. And this whole idea comes across in Mary's, going back to Mary's song, hmm. that of Jesus or uh, the Messiah, the coming Messiah being our liberator. And that we don't really talk about at Christmas time, Jesus being our liberator a whole lot. I think because we don't feel imprisoned or captive. And I always have to remind myself the Christmas story happened because people were in captivity. They were bound up. They were oppressed. And they were crying out for a liberator. And I thought, I don't know, I just think, are we crying out for liberation in our culture or not? Is that a cry that we don't even recognize is present in us and maybe needs to we have to find it somewhere because Christ is our liberator. 
What are the places where we are bound? So instead of being a time of judgment, you know, if you've been good, if you've been naughty, if you've been nice, if you've been bad, the elf on the shelf is watching you. Uh, <laughs> this idea of God coming to be with us to liberate us first, mm. not to judge us first, but to liberate us. And that's where the lament comes in, the cry for, we, can't, we cannot liberate ourselves. We cannot mm. save ourselves. Yeah, no, that's really good. I think um, what we can tend to do, I think, is like we compartmentalize out of the Christian calendar these sort of events, and then, and, and then we kind of want to uh, celebrate them kind of just on their own terms. So here we're, now we're celebrating the birth of Jesus, isn't that great that Jesus came? And then, you know, we have uh, these different different moments, or you know, where we kind of demarcate, you know, um, Revelation, uh, the baptism, the um, you know, then we've got uh, uh, Lent and his time in the wilderness, and then we've got Easter and this whole anyway Pentecost, this whole thing, right? Um, but one of the things that I think is really powerful is when we allow these stories to bleed because they all like into one another, just like they did in the actual life of Jesus, and where they all add a flavor into our understanding of the nature of the gospel. Um, because I think sometimes we can forget that. Um, so the truth of the gospel, however we would articulate that, uh, what salvation looks like in you know um, our eschatology, what we're saved up for, and all that kind of stuff, um, and we can kind of have a, a creed that it, that states certain things that are that are true, um, but the flavor of that can change so dramatically if we forget. We can we can have really really important bits of the flavor that are missing if we don't allow these different celebrations to be part of the ongoing taste of the taste of the gospel um, one of the things that I like to do is I bake a, a special kind of, of um, German egg bread uh, at, at Christmas time uh, Christmas and Easter typically it's part of our tradition as well and um, you know if I don't add in the lemon it doesn't taste the same it's, the, it's bread just the same it probably has a similar amount of nourishment or whatever, but the flavor of it is so is so important, and I think that that's part of this thing that we're talking about here. Um, and even you know, just to again kind of bring this right down into the process of uh, the creative process that many of us are engaged in. Um, you know, the flavor is it matters to God. There's a, there's a reason why He didn't just create nutrition like fruit that's nutritious but without flavor, right? And I think that when we reclaim um, the nature of the story of Christmas and how Christ came and, and allow that to matter, how Christ came, how Christ suffered, how Christ was led in, in temptation, how Christ died, how he was resurrected, how he presented, those are all parts of the ingredients of, of the flavor of the gospel which is a sort of, that's sort of what I hear you talking about, just kind of reflecting on some of those things in terms of the the, the dichotomy between judgment and um, and you know longing for uh, um, 
for somebody to come in and uh, liberate, liberate to liberate us. Liberation is a crucial part of the flavor of the gospel. And if we miss it and that just gets about being able to go to a really long eternal vacation when we die, um, you know, we, we, we've, we've lost the flavor, even if we have the substance somehow in our understanding of truth. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but... No, it really ties into also the Eucharistic meal, right? Where mm. we're, this is actually the body and blood of Jesus, the very incarnated God that is seen as a feast. And, and the Jewish feasts were notorious for having bitter herbs and sweet things together. And I mean, it's just a, a very... Uh, broad kind of meal where you say all the different flavors are incorporated and this is what chefs strive for to to incorporate different textures and flavors and everything so it makes your mouth come alive and i think mm. there's an aliveness to having you know the sorrow the lament the longing and the celebration and the joy and the awareness of god is god's self god is love in god's self because there are multiple parts or persons in this Godhead. What? We never thought of this before. We thought God was just the guy in charge, right? Uh, mm-hmm. the, the king, the, um, the one above everything else. And now suddenly we're talking in communal, familial language, and it just, something comes alive in us every time something new is revealed about mm-hmm. who God is. And I think incarnation is a big chunk of that meal, as you say, that feast. So feasting is totally appropriate uh, at all of these uh, parts of the Christian year because we're always getting, like you said, I really love that imagery of the feast and all the different flavors making something else in us resonate and come alive and, and, and just feel like I'm in tune with that. Yes, I like it. Very good. And now we're all hungry because we're talking about <laughs> we're food, right? I'm, I'm so, I'm so glad that we, I'm so glad that of all of the things that we sort of tore, tore down a little bit or brought down a notch, that the feasting element, we, 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 we hang on to the feasting element. Of course, <laughs> so, yes. So good, it's so good. And for those of us who are storytellers and. Uh, in whatever fashion, whatever whatever way that looks like, whether through paint or through words or through songs or through whatever, um, I just let's tell the story. Let's tell the whole story. Let's tell the beautiful story. Let's tell the bloody and loud story. On that note, Merry Christmas, everybody. Yes, Merry Christmas. Happy Incarnation. Happy bloody incarnation. Bloody Incarnation. Bloody in- <laughs> yeah. So thanks for joining us uh, on another podcast from the Imaginators. It's been really cool to just um, think through some of this stuff, and thanks for listening. We appreciate it. This is Matt Downey in Montreal. And Chris McQueen coming to you from Kitchener, Ontario. See you next time. See you next time, everyone. <laughs>